Welcome to the Writing Westward podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today we talk with author Frank Bergon about his new collection of essays, Two Buck Chuck and the Marlboro Man, The New Old West. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Each episode features a conversation with an author or scholar of new works that explore the North American West. We hope that our discussions will spark your curiosity to learn more and think differently about the North American West as a region and its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. You can follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can listen on our website, writingwestward.org, or subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're listed on most major distributors. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research and events, or anything else, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. You can get more regular updates about the Red Center on Facebook and Twitter as well. Frank Bergon is a novelist, essayist, and critic of the American West, its environments, peoples, history, and its present. A professor emeritus of English from Vassar College and member of the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame, Bergon continues to write and is deeply involved in trying to understand the connections between Western and regional identity and its actual and mythologized histories. Earlier this year, the University of Nevada Press published his new collection of essays, Two Buck Chuck and the Marlboro Man. The essays are grounded in his childhood in California's San Joaquin Valley. In this region, he sees the intersection of many competing Wests, rural and agricultural traditions, like those of his own Basque immigrant families, as well as new economies forcing adaptation for ranches and vineyards, growing urban and suburban geographies, immigrant experiences, and more. They all overlap in the San Joaquin Valley. Here, Bergan uncovers dynamic regional complexity, that mythologized takes on the region often obscure. How does a region reconcile tradition with the changing economic, social, and cultural demands of the present? Bergon may not provide all of the answers, but he certainly does ask many of the questions that we should be considering. Through Fred Franzia and Dara Winfield of the titular Two Buck Chuck and Marlboro Man, Bergon provides fascinating case studies into the overlapping New and Old Wests, identities imagined and real. Bergon's eloquent storytelling and musings illuminate our understanding of the West, new and old, and far beyond the San Joaquin Valley alone. Frank Bergon, thanks for joining us on the podcast this morning. Well, thanks for having me, Brendan. Um, where are you recording from today? Right now, I'm in Oak Bluffs, Massachusetts, on Martha's Vineyard. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. It is. I was happy when uh, your press mailed me this book, kind of out of the blue. Good. And I'm always interested in bringing in people from other disciplines who are thinking about the West uh, in different ways. And this book of essays uh, was timely, and it's a, it really exactly what I needed to be reading right now. So I was happy to spend some time with it. Well, that's great. I look forward to it. You present these essays as you know a number of kind of personal reflections about the West broadly and narrowed in on the San Joaquin Valley. And you present the San Joaquin Valley as a place where the Old West and the New West collide and are currently being remade into what you call America's true West. So I wanted to spend a little time before we jump into some of the essays uh, to talk about the San Joaquin Valley 
Um, okay. Uh, your background there, and maybe even a little bit of your childhood there. How do you, when you think of the San Joaquin Valley of your youth, what there makes it the Old West for you? Well, when I think back or now, I mean, when I think back, because I grew up on a ranch, on my grandfather's ranch right in the center of the San Joaquin Valley in Madera County. And uh, it was a ranch with horses, mules, sheep, cattle, alfalfa, cotton. And uh, I lived in uh, my grandfather's house with my father, mother, brother, sisters, and aunt all in one house. Mm-hmm. And he himself had a long tradition as a rancher. His, with his father, he farmed in Los Angeles, where he was born, and then moved and became a tenant farmer along the San Joaquin River uh, around 1911, 1912, and that's where my father was born. So I grew up in a ranching community, uh, a ranching family. I also had on my mother's side a ranching family in Nevada. So you know, I'm a country boy, mm-hmm. and that's what I remember. And I think since it was instilled in me with the values, the ranching values as a young kid, those have continued to, to the present. Yeah, and it sounds like that is a childhood that has a lot of hallmarks of some Old West, not necessarily mythologies, but, but identifying markers that a lot of people think of as kind of the classic West. Well, it is. It's, when I talk about it, uh, um, the, the San Joaquin Valley, and when I call it the New Old West, uh, my point really is that despite the incredible technological changes that have occur- occurred in farming since I was a kid and so on, that people's minds and attitudes change more more slowly. And I think that was um, really demonstrated when John Gregory Dunn, who is uh, Joan Didion's husband, came to the San Joaquin Valley in the mid-1960s to write about the uh, grape strike being led by Cesar Chavez. Mm-hmm. And Gregory Dunn had written about California and knew it well. But, of course, what he knew was a California of Los Angeles, San Francisco, the coast, and so forth. When he entered the valley, it was what several residents called the other California, just how d- distinguished it is from those tourist haunts. But he said the thing that shocked him was how much the ethic of so many people in the valley – was that of the 19th century frontier. Hmm. So even though on the surface of people's lives change, uh, my point is that the Old West and New West don't so much collide perhaps as as overlap and that the values and attitudes of an earlier time, and especially with people who's of many generations, third, fourth, fifth, generation uh, Westerners influence uh, their present day lives. How did your own family kind of square square these conflicting or overlapping identities? Well, it varies. Um, you know, as I said, I really have t- two families. Um, on my mother's side, uh, she's Basque. Both her parents and my grandparents were Basque 
immigrants. And uh, my grandfather came over in the late 19th century, and my grandmother came over from the Basque country in the early 20th century. And I, I just might use them as an example to see to demonstrate how the important the uh, attitudes of immigrants and migrants were in shaping this kind of this Western attitude I'm talking about. In the Basque language, there's a word called indada, which people applied, for example, to Basque sheep herders. Uh, and it means perseverance, toughness, strength, resilience. So you see how all those words are the mm. ones we identify with the <laughs> myth of the West, too, the cowboys. The rugged and, individual. And the rugged individualists yeah. and all of this. Even though we, you as a historian know that history and mythology often don't coincide, um, they're not separate. And so I think that, that that attitude, that Basque attitude, I think on my Basque side of my family, they, they think of it as being Basque, not necessarily Western, even though um, several who are still in Nevada and when I was growing up, they ran cattle. They were they were cattle ranchers. Um, my grandfather, though, ran a Basque store in a hotel for Basques. Um, with my grandfather and uh, father and mother, they were the you know ch my children of immigrants, and so they carried those attitudes into the West. And again, they're the commonplace old West attitudes of this is a land of individual freedom and opportunity. But of course, being ranchers and farmers, they know that that coincides with disappointment and failure on almost a cyclical basis. Mm -hmm. um, now, I mean, I, uh, so it's a it's a question of attitude, I suppose. And, you know, of course, I and my siblings were no longer ranchers and farmers and so forth. We've gone off to different careers, but certainly those attitudes shaped us in many ways. I think it's interesting. I mean, you quote Wallace Stegner saying rural California is like the rest of the West, only more so, mm -hmm. which is such a great line. But there are a lot of places, in, especially in the rural West, where we can find these kinds of attitudes and identities and peoples, you know, up to the present. San Joaquin Valley, though, does seem to really exemplify some of the modern tensions of technology, of suburban growth, of the urban and rural divides that I think exist in a lot of places around the West. But oh, San, they do. San Joaquin seems like a, a really great place as a case study to examine the, these overlapping worlds. Uh, I think that's the point. It's not, it's not distinctive from the rest of the West. In fact, that's a point I try to stress how it's the inner mountain West and uh, uh, the Great Plains and other areas share much of what uh, I'm talking about as existing in the San Joaquin Valley. But as you point out, in a way, um, the San Joaquin Valley embodies all of those tensions and uh, of attitudes and conflicts. You know, there's, there's a good reason why people used to say don't Californicate our state. Hmm. And, well, it, it really meant that 
what was happening in California uh, would eventually happen in other states as as well. It was just that it was happening first. And I think that given that the in many ways the San Joaquin Valley is this intense farming community rich in uh, racial and and ethnic heritage um, where the technology of farming is changing rapidly it uh, embodies or signals what's happening through throughout throughout the west in an intense way so you know, I'm not making a point. Oh, it's so completely different from the <laughs> rest of the West. Not at all. But it kind of it, it gives us a glimpse into things ha- yeah, happening, happening all around. It does. Um, I mean, you mentioned your Basque heritage. Um, you have this chapter entitled Basque Dirt. I'm talking about a man named uh, Mitch it, um, Lascoiti. Les, I, I knew I was going to mispronounce the name, so I'm glad <laughs> you jumped in. Yeah. Lascoiti. He started as a Basque um, sheep rancher, and he's but it has now become quite a large landowner. I'm doing quite well, and again, this kind of interesting overlap between Basque identity and what we sometimes think of as real traditional Western identity. You, you're asking him why it is that he keeps on buying up ranches and land, and he says, "I just like dirt. I'm I'm Basque. I have an affinity for dirt." Right. Um, which. In, in the rural West, we often do get these stereotypes and these ideas of a real connection with the land and that there's a commonality amongst the people of the Old West is that there is a premium on not just owning land, but having a connection to it and staying put on that land, being dedicated to it, which is different from how we sometimes talk about the New West, which is a population that is highly mobile. And um, sometimes, sometimes, especially if it's more urban or suburban, more disconnected from the land itself. How do you see that tension playing out? Is, is there a as we lose this connection to the land for some of us as Westerners? Is what, what is the loss of culture or community um, as exemplified through this Basque example or, or through others? What's what's lost in that? Well, what's lost is exactly what you're talking about: that tradition and and community. And uh, a sense of continuity to your life. I mean, we do get meaning of our own lives from the past. I think, you know, what you're pointing to in talking about these changes is uh, something that's fundamental that's happened. What's happening today, as you know, is this – we read it in the press all the time – this big uh, split between rural America and urban America. Mm -hmm. And we read in the press, well, we gotta, we gotta understand these country people a little bit better. We have to understand uh, uh, what these rural people are, are thinking. And then uh, it's forgotten. Or uh, people come down and do stories. And from my point of view, they're often influenced by preconceptions and, and stereotypes. And if you go looking for stereotypes, you're gonna find them. Yeah, you'll find what you look for. Yeah. It, exactly. So that's why in telling me these stories, I didn't have – when I began, I had no agenda. Um, I was writing for a couple magazines, a few stories and profiles, and then they just began to accumulate. And as they accumulated, what emerged was this theme that we're now talking about, uh, uh, the New Old West. But the point that I'm getting at finally here is uh, the 
big stunning shift that has occurred that when my grandfather arrived from Southern California in the San Joaquin Valley and began, as I said, as a tenant farmer, half the people in America lived in rural areas, lived on farms and ranches. Now 1% live on the farms and ranches that produce the food. So all of those ranches or areas that produce food are split between those, and I'm talking about the county that I grew up in, Madera County, and several people that I write about in the book who are third, fourth, and even fifth generation family farmers, and others who are in what my dad used to call bedroom farmers, who are just owners of large tracts of land mm. that produce produce. So, you know, there's two splits between rural and urban, and then even in a rural community and ranching community, there's this other split. So when you have one, only 1% of the country living <laughs> on ranches and farms, they're not going to have much clout in, uh, in uh, larger culture. I mean, this is the irony is that we often think of the West as a, you know, a more rural region, but per, per capita, I mean, from the numbers I've seen, it's the most urbanized region. Uh, more Westerners live in urban and suburban settings than in rural than in any other place in the country. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's becoming more so. I mean, the way what's happening in California, the way that uh, the San Francisco Bay Area is actually just spreading into what's generically called the central valley yeah this this suburban sprawl right 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 i also think there's something quintessentially western though in this story of transformation we, we talk about westerners resilience of their adaptability of their not not just ability to persevere but to train change and transform you know in the face of challenge mm -hmm. and so there, there is something maybe quintessentially western also then about some of these regional transformations well, there are, uh, you know, and because of the way I write and the sort of books I write, um, you know, I, I immediately begin thinking of individuals. Yeah. And uh, so what you're saying, I, what pops into the mind or my mind are some of the people that I write about. One interesting person is um, the Korean immigrant came over for and calls herself a Korean Okie. Uh -huh. Because she was ad adopted by a migrant Dusbo family, and she said, even though I'm Asian on the outside, I'm really more like them, the Dusbo Western Okies inside, mm -hmm. and share their values. Now, again and again, this seems to uh, happen with other migrants and immigrants who move into the region, there's a kind of shared um, value system that emerges, and it's certainly clear-cut in, in her case. She openly professes it. Yeah, you bring that up with Lewis Owens as well, a Native American novelist who right. kind of self-identified also as, as an Okie um, right. and a kind of a real unique set of, uh, of identities there. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Fred Franzia. Okay. Who... I think some people may know the Franzia name without realizing they know it um, from the grocery store. Um, right. And uh, and Fred's 
influence with his vineyards and wineries. How does he kind of exemplify this this adaptability and this this state of transition uh, in the West uh, and in the San Joaquin Valley? Tell us a okay. little bit about Fred. All right. First of all, I want to say that all those wines you see uh, with the Francia label are not him. Are not his. Or oh, they used to be his family's. They used to be his family. His uncles and father sold it first to the Coca-Cola company, and then they sold it to others. So wine in a box. And this was a, a great uh, source of angst to Fred when this occurred. Um, and his model was his grandmother, who was an immigrant came over when there were just rattlesnakes and sagebrush on the San Joaquin Valley, started a small vineyard, uh, then a winery, and worked on the line into old age. So he got this, uh, you know, in talking about the attitudes that continue, he got that attitude of perseverance and hard work and resilience from his grandmother. Mm -hmm. So what happened was he and his brother and cousin – started their own company called the Bronco Wine Company. They started from scratch. And first he was involved in the bulk wine business, and he was selling wines to Trader Joe's. And he was selling a two ninety nine <laughs> wine, Argentine wine, to Trader Joe's. And they came to him and said, well, we'd like a $1.99 import. And Fred went to his brother and said, I think we can do this. And so he developed the wine, which with the label Charles Shaw. Which is he was going around buying up lots of labels, existing labels, right? Right, because he didn't have his own name. He couldn't yeah. use the Francia name. Yeah. <laughs> so when what he was doing was when wineries would go defunct, he would buy their label. Um, so when – he was flipping through his labels, as he, he told me, uh, looking for a label. He picked Charles Shaw because it was once an elite Napa wine before it uh, went bankrupt. So he called this wine Charles Shaw and sold it. Trader Joe's sold it for a dollar ninety nine, And this was in 2002. There was no advertising. And in the first year, it sold a million cases. And it became the fastest selling wine in history. Then by 2016, he had sold a billion bottles. No wine oh has, has sold so many bottles so uh, quickly. So the mystery was, how did he do it? Well, going back to your original question, you know, he's, he was an, he was an innovator. He, he's a fiend for work. I remember exchanging emails with him in his office, um, on, uh, Christmas and New Year's morning, because I knew I could catch him. <laughs> um, so the, there's an, uh, uh, the mystery of Fred. He's very private. He, when a PR man came to work, he told the PR man, I want no press. Well, this person had come from working for Robert Mondavi, the famous Napa Valley vintner who wanted all press. Mm-hmm. And, um, so the real mystery about Fred was how did he do it? Well, he, he's he's an innovator. He's an ad, a, a adapter. Um, nobody in any other book has figured out how he could make this profit by beginning to sell wine at a dollar ninety nine. That's how it picked up the moniker Two Buck Chuck. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's called uh, Two Buck Chuck. 
which maybe is not a term of endearment, but he got the last laugh, didn't he? He did. <laughs> he did. Yeah. He always refers to it as Charles Shaw. Yeah. But, you know, it's an interesting story. I mean, if there's – so how did he do it? It's, uh, executives in the big wine companies have told me that the uh, cork and bottle alone had cost him a buck. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, distributor takes 30 percent and the retailer takes another 30 for, or 40 percent, and there's absolutely no profit. So it, it was complete, a complete mystery how he managed to do it. And there were all these myths. You were talking about myths that arise, whether urban myths as well as Western myths. And one was that after 9-11, he bought all the bottles of wine from the airline companies because they could no longer use corkscrews on the airplanes. And he got all that wine, which, of course, was a false story. <laughs> and then um, he was just repackaging it and giving it to right, Trader Joe's. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> right, right. But basically, it's a bit complicated, but he went to Trader Joe's and said, what I'll do is give you an exclusive. This wine will only be sold in Trader Joe's and nowhere else. But you can't take your usual 30 or 40 percent. You have to take much less. So the rest is history. And now – he is the biggest vineyard owner in the country with close to 50,000 acres of grapes. They like to say officially it's 40,000 acres, and they're moving their all-organic vineyards. Mm-hmm. So he keeps adapting. Um, to save money, he changed the cases from white cardboard to brown cardboard. He developed his own trucking company. He built a railroad uh, tracks into his uh, main wine winery, though they have several around the state. And yet, the thing is, he still works in the original construction site trailers. And when I last visited him, I mean, he takes great pride in this. The there's the industrial carpet on the floor with holes on it, where you can see the particle board underneath, <laughs> and some of the holes are patched with duct tape. And he's sitting there, and his PR man said that's how he likes it. He wants it to be just like the old days. Yeah, and again, yes, we see these overlapping. He's an innovator. He's modern, um, but he, there's still this pride in like this old, an old west sensibility. And uh, surprisingly, he still does. When he goes into towns, he's still wants to go to the local Don Chewy Mexican restaurant mm-hmm. and eat uh, where there's no table service. You get your own tacos and sit at the side. He go, when he negotiates with farmers, he does it with a handshake. And then after the crops are in, they go and settle up and even determine the price afterwards, not before. Um, things like that. You know, that's that's what you would call the old style. Yeah. Also, there, you had a story about um, a woman named Irene Waltz, right. uh, a native Californian Indian, right. and her, you know, experiences growing up. And <clears throat> towards the end, you start talking about kind of the history of, of genocide, native genocide, yes. in California, and uh, revealed that even in her own personal history as a Cal- native Californian, that she actually had ancestors on both sides of some of those genocidal campaigns of the mid and late. 
right. the 19th century. And it got me to thinking about how how many Westerners, and we see this in uh, in Fred's story and all the other stories, that many Westerners, and maybe it actually is the hallmark of Westerners, is these split identities and these competing identities that, and maybe this isn't unique to the West, maybe this is everybody everywhere, um, but we often like to think of ourselves as a certain thing. I'm a Westerner or I'm, you know, a, you know, I grew up in Washington. And I very much think of myself as kind of a Pacific Northwest boy. But competing with that are all kinds of other things. We all have our split allegiances and identities. Well, I think, you know, it, it, what you're pointing to is really the complexity of American life um, that's maybe intensified in some ways in some of these people's stories but that that we at great peril uh, ignore uh, today, uh, you know, there's this great absence of nuance. And, of course, we always want things simplified. Black and white. We, yeah. we want people. We want good guys. We want bad guys. We yeah. Want, and we want people who are clearly Native American. Well, you mentioned Lewis Owens. We'll get to Irene in a minute. Uh, Lewis Owens thought of himself when he was growing up. As a, a migrant, he was treated like an Okie. His parents migrated into the uh, valley. They worked as laborers. And when he came to uh, my class, at, he came as one of the most famous Native American writers in the country. Well, the fact of the matter is many of the Dust Bowl migrants share Native American heritage, mm -hmm. Choctaw, Cherokee, and so forth. Um, so it's too complex to present to the reading public. Well, uh, here is this fellow who's mixed Choctaw, Cherokee, Welsh, Irish, and so forth. So he's presented as a Native American writer. But what he told my students, he said, you know, I wasn't discriminated against as a kid, as an Indian. You can look at my features and see why. And so, again, there's that mixed blood heritage mm -hmm. that makes a difference. But he said we were always the poorest family in every town we went into. And that was a great embarrassment to me. So that's what really shaped him. And his story as a result is very complex for that reason. But, of course, he's even to this day just celebrated as a simply as Native American. Primarily, though, he thinks of himself he, as kind of his foundational identity was that of a, of a poor migrant farmer. That was, that was foundational, yeah. but then yeah. eventually he wrote a book about it. He said mixed blood, his mixed blood yeah. heritage. He's proud of his mixed blood heritage, and he wrote a book called Mixed Blood mm -hmm. Messages. Now, Irene is interesting, and I think you know her story allowed me to write about the decimation of California Indians and um, not many people realize that California had the biggest and most diverse Indian population in the continental yep. United States. And during that uh, period from the gold rush for the next 20 years, the slaughter of the Indians was the most intense of any in our history. And yet, as she said, that story isn't told. Yeah. And not uh, just not just intense, but intentional. Intentional. You mentioned to her reading Ben Madley's book. Right. Um, I, I texted him a picture saying, hey, you're getting a shout out in Bergon's book. But there's a number of, of really great works coming out, really highlighting that 
And, yes. And like, so like Irene said, you know, California native history and that is not part of California identity. It's not part of how California tells its history outside of maybe like the mission experience, right? Which is a very mythologized part of, you know, that California it kids is. learn in elementary school and they build their little mission out of sugar cubes in the fourth grade or whenever it is. Right. Um, but, right. but the rest of the story isn't, yeah, isn't, isn't told. So how does that play with Irene then in, in her identity? Well, you know, as she said, um, well, what happened in that part of the San Joaquin Valley where we both grew up, uh, as an anthropologist said, it was the most intensely decimated area of California because of the gold rush primarily. Well, missionization, um, it began with the missions because uh, many of the Yokut Indians from the valley were taken from the valley to the missions. But the real uh, decimation that occurred during the beginning with the with the gold rush. Um, so what happened is she grew up in an area where there was no tradition. She knew she was different. She had a great aunt and a great uncle who lived with her, but she didn't have, as she pointed out, uh, any connection to a larger community, tribal community, mm -hmm. as the Hopis did, as the Navajos did, because so many of the uh, tribes or peoples that she was connected to were then extinct. Mm -hmm. So there was that sense of loneliness. And it was only when she went off to college, and it was the beginning of the American Indian movement, when she met other California Indians, that she began to develop this sense of identity which she internalized as a as a, uh, a Native American. Mm -hmm. And then she became an official member of the Chukansi tribe, in which she's still very active now as, uh, um, as a, a officer in that tribe. Well, and, and you mentioned, you know, that she and others didn't – people knew that they were Native. It wasn't that it was a hidden thing, but there just wasn't the same – assumptions and identities lumped together with that. Um, you, you, some of her siblings assimilated very well, some right. uh, uh, associated more with, with Hispanic communities. Because there wasn't a, a, a native community there to, to be rooted to. Um, there there yeah. were in the mountains. The thing is, they mm -hmm. didn't fit the stereotype of an Indian. Yes, you know, yes. Of the Plains Indians and so forth. Yeah. Which gets to there's these ideas of you know authenticity and what real Indians are and are not and <laughs> this uh, is one of the yeah. ironies of our our time I think and and now there's this intense need okay we have to find the authentic and the more we search for the uh, authentic we're presented with media creations yes. of the authentic yeah. so as a kid I mean she read about Indians as she pointed out in school but they were always Plains Indians bloodthirsty Plains Indians and with feathers and so forth, and and these weren't the Indians uh, like her grandfather and others who were in uh, in the mountains. I mean, this is why I like. I mean, with my students, I mean, next semester I'm teaching a seminar, like a Western American Studies seminar, and it all kind of revolves around identity. And uh, I think it's so much fun to play with because the more that you try to search for authenticity, you know, the more elusive it becomes, which is for me kind of the point. You know, I, I like talking exactly. about Western identity and mythologies uh, because they do have a lot of power. But right. in your introduction, you say um, too often the West gets jammed into popular stereotypical extremes of the mythic West or the debunked West, one legendary and romantic, the other brutalizing and empty 
both cartoonish, which right. is really the, the point that I like to get to with my students, that we assign so much power to these myths and it becomes kind of a chicken or the egg situation where we, we buy into a, a mythic West and we then try to perform it and it becomes part of who we are, Exactly. Um, but it is empty and somewhat cartoonish. Exactly. I think, you know, that's one of the things I try to investigate in my story about Daryl Winfield, the Marple Man. That, that's what I thought maybe this, yeah, would perfectly lead to. So it, very interesting to find that you were close personal friends with uh, Daryl Winfield, the Marble Man himself, and uh, maybe introduce to our listeners how he represents really this idea of really the most mythologized uh, image we have of the Westerner, and then under the surface, how much more complex he was as a person. Well, um, let me see where to begin. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. I mean, first of all, begin with a with a Marlboro uh, ad campaign. I mean, it says something that the Marlboro Company in 1955 began trying to change. Marlboro cigarettes from a feminine image of a woman's filtered cigarette. They developed what they called Marlboro men, all these tough, rugged sailors, uh, lumberjacks, football players with tattoos on their hand, Mm -hmm. and cowboys. The most popular image was the cowboy. In 1962, they bought the rights to the theme song, The Magnificent Seven. I don't know if everybody of a certain yep. age remembers that song. And the Marlboro, that's when Marlboro Country was uh, introduced. At that time, up until then, for the most part, they were using models. The first working cowboy came in, uh, Carl Bagley, in 1963. Daryl Winfield was somebody that I had met in uh, 1962. He was a working cowboy. He had come when he was six years old from Oklahoma and during the Dust Bowl migration, grew up in the San Joaquin Valley, always wanted to be a cowboy all his life and became one. I remember looking at those ads and said, you know, Winfield, you look more like a Marlboro man than, than any of those people in ads. <laughs> he just laughed it off. Eventually, he um, – after – He got into the cattle business. It went broke for various reasons. He then moved to Wyoming, the Quarter Circle Five Ranch in 1968. Um, It was owned by somebody in my hometown, Madera, California, Mm -hmm. that he knew and so forth. The Marlboro people showed up on the ranch with some models and they saw Daryl Winfield chipping ice and with a mustache and they went crazy. (laughs) They took some test shots. Uh, Philip Morris Company, the Leo Burnett Agency, said, uh, looked at the shots and thought this is what the kind of person they were always looking for. Uh, they got in touch with him and said, uh, we're doing a shoot in Texas. We would like you to come down to Texas. Now, being a cowboy and a prankster, he thought that some of his cowboy buddies we're trying to trick him to get on a plane and go to Texas and make a fool of himself. Because it would be more embarrassing than <laughs> and, and pretentious, you know. <laughs> right. So he said to them, well, we're pretty busy shipping cattle. If you boys want to take my picture, you better come up here. 
which they did. And I remember at that time it, I opened up uh, Life magazine and there was a full page picture. I said, that's Daryl. So I called up his wife and said, wow, Daryl's now the Marlboro man. I said, what do you think about it? Oh, she said, I don't know if that's so good. <laughs> and um, But anyway, he went on from then on for the next 20 years. He was the focus of 85 percent of the commercials and ads in the Marlboro campaign. Marlboro cigarette shot to the top of being the best-selling cigarette in the, in, in, in the world. Um he never stopped being a working cowboy. Uh, and from 1968 to 1974, he remained a cow boss for the Quarter Circle 5 Ranch. In 74, after the cattle market collapsed, he moved to Riverton, Wyoming and bought the first property of his life, 40 acres of a horse ranch, which he expanded to 80, continued being a horse rancher the rest of his life. So for 30 years, he was the main Marlboro man. And, and of course, there were other cowboys who were uh, in those ads. They were what they called feature cowboys or mm -hmm. non-feature cowboys. Um, for example, a wrangler who might incidentally be in a, in a, in a shoot. But in the press, as you, everybody knows, uh, thought, well, I thought the Marlboro man was dead of lung cancer. And that was reported so many times in the press. In 1992, the Philip Morris Company told the New York Times, well, uh, you can look at many of the cowboys that we've used and call them the Marlboro Man, but Daryl Winfield is the Marlboro Man. And that continued all for 30 years. He's the main Marlboro Man. He phased out after that. And... Other uh, cowboys became feature cowboys, but you can still you can see him when he was 68 years old in a Marlboro commercial on YouTube called Rope Dance. Yes. If somebody wants to take a take a look. Okay, what's interesting about all of that? Um, when he was interviewed by the Museum of American History, well, he, he was kind of close-lipped. I mean, even though he was a real storyteller and a jokester and so on. And till he said, made this shocking remark that he said that his life really – he didn't think that becoming the Marlboro Man had changed his life that much, had made any difference in his life. Now, his point was that he still got up every morning, went to work every morning, put on his boots, and he had the same friends as he always had, ate the same food he did. Though he had quit smoking and was eating bison instead of beef, but he was basically the, the same person. But um, he's the exact opposite of the cowboy of Western myth and film. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, that uh, person who was always fighting the Indians. Well, he happened to be married to a woman who's enrolled in uh, Choctaw. Uh, tribe. Mm -hmm. He was adopted by the Arapahoes in Wyoming. In, uh, Wyoming. Also, the mythic cowboy, even the one emphasized in commercials, is of that strong, rugged individualist. And Darrow is one of the most communal family men you can imagine. He's always been sur surrounded by uh, families. Got a ton of had had a ton of 
children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. So he's just the opposite of that Lone Ranger riding off into the sunset saying uh, adios to the woman behind him. Yeah, so, I mean, the public thinks they're looking at the quintessential cowboy. And, in fact, they are looking at a true ranching cowboy who really is authentic to the region, but not in the way they think. They think they're looking at a cowboy who's this rugged individual, and they think they're looking at the mythologized cowboy and imposing on him all these things that he actually isn't, because he's actually the real deal. That's, that's exactly it's, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and, and rather than those uh, individualistic values, which we tout as being those of the, of the, of the rugged, lone, uh, gunfighting Westerner, those Winfield's basic values were communal. Yeah. I mean, you say the true story of the American West is not of independence, but interdependence. Exactly. And I mean, the more you study the Western history, that, that, that is true. It's just not the myth that we often uh, are, are raised on. I mean, I was really struck, you know, towards the end of his life, you, you present these, these scenes where he's uh, battling cancer and who is he surrounded by? Not just family and friends, but native peoples coming to his house to hold sweats, to do Arapaho healing ceremonies for him. I mean, that definitely does not square with a lot of the Western movies. No, uh, not at all. Right? Who would have guessed that, you know, maybe the, the truest uh, Westerner there is, is a deeply complex and nuanced person, right? Not the stereotype, not the cartoonish stereotype. No, in fact, as as you suggest, he he shatters that stereotype. Yeah. He even shatters the stereotype of the uh, Barbo man who died of cancer, of course, because you know there he did find they did find a tumor in his lung, and he refused treatment because at his age he asked the doctors. One doctor gave him I don't I forget what it was six months. The other gave him mm-hmm. two months to live. And he said, well, tell me the name of uh, somebody that you operated on and did chemo and um, radiation and was still alive today. And they couldn't give him a name. So he did, as as you said, he went through the healing ceremonies with uh, Indians, also used a medicine that he used on his horses and cattle. Which just – I that – that's just so so perfect. But then six months later, he went back and had X-rays in it, and this tumor had shrunk. And yeah. the doctor said, "Well, keep it up." Yep. Two years later, there was nothing but scar tissue. <laughs> so he, I wanted to make the point that he lived until he was 85 years old and died of a heart attack yeah. in January of 2015. You know, my dad grew up um, on a uh, on a, kind of a farm out in the rural county in, where we live in in Washington, and um, you know, grew up with cows and stuff, and he still has this cow salve. Watkins still makes um, various forms of cow salve, uh-huh. but they're not as good as the one he grew up with. And he still has this old red tin. I don't know how long he's been milking this tin <laughs> of cow salve. I mean, as long as I can remember, anytime I got a cut, you know, or something, you you know, not Neosporin. No, no, you get a little of this cow salve, put it on there, and he still uses it. And um, yeah, the story of of, of Daryl using this black, some, some black substance that usually is used externally on horses or cattle. He right. was swallowing the stuff and he was, yes, there yes. was the cancer. <laughs> yep. Yep. So as he said, well, uh, 
you could say there was a connection or you could say there was a coincidence, mm-hmm. but something worked. Yeah. Well, why this is really important, I think, um, is you also bring in a brief discussion of, of the Bundys and some of these anti-government movements which have come up, you know, the kind of this, the second edition of the Sagebrush Rebellion. And this idea of the, the mythology of the Western cowboy and who he is and what that myth means has real world impact because, uh, I mean, you bring in this example in the early 80s of this kid, Claude Dallas, who comes right. out to the West to become an outlaw and a cowboy. And there's a certain kind of this Marlboro man idea that he wants to go out and perform and become. And he ends up killing um, some Idaho game wardens. And now, uh, more recently, we've had the, the Bundy standoff in Nevada, the Malheur occupation up in Oregon, uh, with the with people trying to perform a certain idealized version of what they think a Western cowboy is. But in Daryl Winfield, we see that they're misreading what what the more authentic Western man is. I think this connects to where we began our uh, discussion because people are trying to live out uh, a myth, which is basically false. And in doing so, they're here. They're facing situations. I'll I'll just talk about the standoff and um, where The old industries of ranching, logging, and mining are disappearing. People are losing their jobs, and there's understandable anger and so forth. Um, The problem is how to deal with that. They, in adapting what is really a mythological figure who really never existed and saying that this is the true way we have to deal with these changes this in the our world yeah. produces violence, violence, uh, unnecessary violence. They're not doing what the Marlboro, the real Marlboro man, Daryl Winfield did. They're not doing what Fred Francia did. They're not doing what the real Westerners did in the San Joaquin Valley, which is to hold on to their values, but to adapt and change. There's a powerful, powerful lesson here. You know, I think about not necessarily the responsibility that the media has necessarily in perpetuating myths because we like stories you know and there's there's no problem in telling stories until uh, someone takes maybe uh, the worst reading of those histories and tries to implement it in the present Um, then we have then we have real trouble so i mean so that's why i i really appreciate uh these essays and the not just necessarily the reintroduction but reinforcing the reality that the West in history or in the present is complex and messy and nuanced. And any time that we are presented with a stereotype, we should be very skeptical, right? Because um, there's there's no black and white answers to modern problems. There were no black and white answers then either in the past. Well, you know, I appreciate that, that perspective, because I think there is a problem. I'm not going to mention any, but within the last year in major magazines, there have been three um, essays about the San Luis Valley in Colorado, about mm-hmm. the San, San Joaquin Valley, and about uh, Tucson, Arizona, down on the border. Uh-huh. All three are by uh, people from New York who approached 
the subject with preconceptions. And as we said right at the beginning of our conversation, what they found were or thought they found were the very stereotypes they were looking for. So and as you said, this is how these various misconceptions of the West, why so many people in rural America feel that they're misrepresented, even invisible. I heard that complaint all the invisible. time. Invisible. Wow. Yeah. So. I mean, what I tried to do with this book, and I think what we have to do, and it, I think you were making this point, is if people would go and start with actual, the actual living people themselves before they begin with uh, generalizations, that we'll, in that way we're going to come to a much richer, more nuanced, more complex understanding of rural America, which all the media is telling us we're supposed to do at this time. Yeah, and we desperately need to because there are real serious issues that need to be dealt with in the region, um, and so we need to approach it with with more care. I mean, I'm reminded just a few days ago, um, High Country News published a book review, um, a book by Christopher Ketchum published by Viking. Yes. So, I mean, this is a major trade press book that's going to be in Barnes & Noble and airport bookstores yes. um, called This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining <laughs> the American West, and High Country News's critique I mean, the headline of the book review is the West is more than heroes and villains. So, uh, yeah. it, the, and, and I, I know nothing of the author and I'll, I'd like to pick the book up so I can kind of weigh it for myself. But their critique is kind of what you're suggesting, that someone came in looking for stereotypes and found them. But th that's not going to get us towards any real solutions of, you know, the region's issues. But, you know, that goes back to you were making that point about how the West is jammed into stereotypes of either the le legendary West or the debunked. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly where that particular book fits. Mm -hmm. And it, appeal it, it not only appeals to people's preconceptions. So you immediately got all the bad guys out there. But then it it it. Um, fosters the misperceptions well as a, a lifelong westerner um you know i'm well and, you know now i've literally made a career out of blathering on about the region um, <laughs> um i appreciate the, the nuanced take that you have presented for us i thank you well uh, thank you very much do you do you have uh things coming up in the future that we should keep on our radar well um i have a book a new book what uh, it's called The <laughs> Toughest Kid We Knew, The Old New West. And what I do is move back in time <laughs> and write about my uh, uh, immediate farming family and boyhood community. So this, so that'll be out in May. Great. And who's publishing that? Uh, Nevada University of Nevada Press. Great, great. So this was The New Old West, and that one is The Old New West. Right. So okay. both books have been published by University of Nevada <laughs> Press. Well, that's great. Uh, well, I look forward to getting my hands on it, Frank. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Thanks so much for chatting. All right. Take care. So long. Thanks for listening to this episode. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll include a link in the episode description. Besides subscribing to the podcast, you can receive regular updates about upcoming episodes by following on Facebook or Twitter. 
My name is Brennan Rensing, and I serve here as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, uh, and pretty much everything else. So if you have any praise or critiques, you should probably just send them my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history here at Brigham Young University. Feel free to contact me if you have any questions about the podcast, the Red Center, our live-streamed lectures and events, funding opportunities, or anything else. If you have books you think I should consider for an episode, please send them my way. One last plug, I'm also the project manager and general editor of a great digital public history project hosted here at the Red Center called Intermountain Histories. You can check it out by visiting www.intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. There you can read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. In any case, thanks again for listening to the episode. We'll see you next month.